to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Looking at John the Baptist. Father in heaven, you've given us your word as a lamp to our feet, that we would know you, that we would love you, that we would trust you. Time has shown us that everything around us shifts and changes, but your word never changes. Isaiah said that we as human beings are like the grass and the flowers of the field, and the grass withers and the flowers fade away, but your word stands forever. So would you grant us understanding this morning, grant us obedience, grant us faithfulness, for the sake of Jesus, glory and honor, I ask this in his name, amen. We've already talked a little bit about John's message in the first couple of verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So... We've already talked about them a little bit. Let me just summarize here. The message of John was the same as the message of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the only proper response on the part of anybody is to repent. This is not a test. This is not a drill. This is actually happening. This is real life. It is the world unfolding before you. God's kingdom is going to explode on the face of the earth. And only those who have repented of their sins and turned to him in faith will be spared the judgment to come. In Isaiah 3, Isaiah writes, Tell the the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. We might look at that and say, okay, so I'm either righteous or I'm unrighteous, What the Bible says is we all failed the righteousness test. Romans 3 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so repentance is the message that's appropriate to the news that the kingdom of heaven has come. Sinners are to repent. Men are to repent. Women are to repent. Jews and Gentiles are to repent. The rich and the poor are to be, are, are to repent. So at the very beginning, we can say that, that no one has the right to be surprised when judgment comes. We know from within our own consciences that we are guilty of sin. We know that our world is filled with sin. Good night. You get up today and read the news and see what's happening in our communities and in our state and in our nation and in the world. And it is just falling to pieces. It is just falling to pieces. Sin is being promoted and pushed upon us and it's being pushed upon our children. We're fortunate to live in a place in the country where schools are still relatively conservative, but that's not going to last long. Your children will one day need to be homeschooled. If not your children, then your, then your, your grandchildren. Because beginning in kindergarten, they're going to be presented with a godless, homosexual, anti-Christian emphasis that is bold and in their face. It's coming. 
It's already existing on the coasts. It's coming here too. God has declared warnings of judgment and of salvation through his prophets in the Old Testament and through the gospel and his apostles and his own son in the New Testament. John had a significant role within the unfolding of this. And John's role is described in the next verse. For this is he, John, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 700 years before John's ministry began, Isaiah wrote those words. God speaking to his people, saying that he was going to send a messenger, a forerunner, who would announce the arrival of his son. The people were to prepare themselves for that soon coming Savior by repenting. The last Old Testament book, Malachi, closes with a promise from God. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Matthew 11, Jesus tells us bluntly that John is Elijah who was to come. John even took on Elijah's appearance. Verse 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. The garment of camel's hair and the leather belt around his waist is exactly how Elijah is described in 2 Kings chapter 1. We see a picture there in 2 Kings that's repeated by John. John chose his clothes specifically because of his prophetic role in the, the manner of Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah, who was a fast-moving, hard-hitting man of God who had no doubts about his role, no doubts about the spiritual state of the people of Israel. There's a fascinating story in 2 Kings 1. King Ahaziah wants to see Elijah the prophet. So he sends a platoon of 50 men with a captain to Elijah. And that first captain goes to Elijah and says, The king says, come down. Elijah calls fire down out of heaven that consumes them. He doesn't work for the king. The king hears about this and he sends a second group of 50 with a captain. That captain says to Elijah, This is the king's order. Come down. Elijah calls fire down out of heaven to consume them. And again, the message is, I don't work for the king. I don't answer to the king. I'm not under the king's authority. I will not be ordered by the king. Ahaziah sent a third platoon with a third captain. That third captain said, please don't hurt us. Please have mercy on us. And Elijah said, that's the proper approach. And he went with them to see the king. Elijah's food was locusts and wild honey. Both locusts and honey, of course, were permissible for Jews to eat. But there's a picture here beyond his diet of the blessing and the cursing of God. When we see locusts appear in the Old Testament, it is quite often a picture of judgment. In fact, the the, the prophetic book of Joel opens up with this this picture of the complete and utter destruction of Israel using locusts as a picture. What the flying locusts don't eat, the swarming locusts eat. What the swarming locusts don't eat, the crawling locusts will eat. And he goes through, and the picture is there is nothing left. That's the judgment of God. 
The honey is a picture of the sweetness of God and the provision of God in the land. They were coming into a land that was filled with milk and honey. It was a land where everything had been provided for them. Honey was unique at the time. There really was no such thing as cultivated honey. All honey was wild honey. It was a a, a found blessing. It, It didn't exist in every tree. But when you found it, it was of great value. And it was a sign of the goodness of God in providing his grace for the people. So John himself, and certainly his ministry, is, is a, an explosively impressive reminder that the blessing of God is coming upon the righteous and the judgment of God is coming upon the wicked. From his dress to his diet to his message. There's a positive response to his message. Verses 5 and 6 says, Then Jerusalem... And all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is a significant number of people at a time when virtually all communication was mouth-to-mouth and and person-to-person. There's no email, there's no text, there's no Twitter. There's not even that much written communication, certainly not in a local area. But over a period of time, there are some scholars who believe that tens of thousands of people eventually made their way to John. And John, by the way, is not in a place that's on the way somewhere. John is not a roadside attraction so that as you're traveling from this point to that point, you pass John and there he is. We may as well stop and look. John's essentially at the end of a cul-de-sac. You have to deliberately go to him. And many thousands of people did. And let's remember that there's nothing attractive about John's message. There's nothing feel-good about John's message. There's nothing comforting or affirming about John's message. It's not designed to make people feel better about themselves. It's not intended to affirm self-righteousness. It is a clear warning that judgment is coming, but that God will save those who turn from their sins and turn toward him in faith. He flattered no one. He pandered no one. He curried favor with no one. John was eventually arrested by Herod and put to death because he publicly criticized Herod for his adulterous relationship with a woman he called his wife, but who was actually his brother's wife. There's no human explanation for John's impact and for the popularity that he had with the people and all the people who went down and confessed their sins and, and were baptized by him as they confessed their sins. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, taking a message that is grim and gritty and driving it into the hearts of the people who said, I want to believe the good things, I want to believe the positive things and the happy things, but that's true of me. I'm under the judgment of God, and I must turn from my sins and turn to the Lord in faith. And they did, in droves, to prepare their hearts and to prepare a way for the coming king. John told them what to do, repent. And he gave them an immediate means of demonstrating their repentance to themselves and others, baptism. But there was also a negative response. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham 
as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We see the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Gospels. The Pharisees far more frequently than the Sadducees. They're very different religious groups. They're very different politically and socially. The Pharisees were conservatives. They were fundamentalists. They used the Old Testament as a starting point for their own religious practices, but then they added traditions to those scriptures and frequently violated the scriptures by their traditions. They would have denied the need for repentance because they were righteous. By their definition, they were righteous. They didn't need to repent. They'd gone through the right rituals. They had carried out the right actions. They tithed on their mint and their dill, and they gave alms in a loud way, and they prayed publicly. They're very religious people. They don't need to repent. The Sadducees were the liberals. They're the aristocrats of Israel. They're the the rulers. They dominated the leadership of of the land, of the priesthood, of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the nation. They denied life after death. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied the existence of angels or spiritual beings. They taught that your soul perishes when you die. And so for the the Sadducees, there's no point in repentance because there's no judgment. So you have the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other. Politically, they're opposed. Spiritually, they're opposed. Theologically, they're opposed. The Pharisees say there's no... There's no need for repentance. The Sadducees say there's no point in repentance, but they have locked arms together against John and his preaching because of the impact he was having on the people. Many, many people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus for reasons other than forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But none of those reasons is legitimate. The person who says, I don't need forgiveness and I don't need eternal life, but I need a friend, so I'll come to Jesus and he'll be my friend, is not a Christian. That's what the gospel says. We dare not minimize things to the point where somebody will nod their head and pray a prayer or raise their hand or go forward just to get them to go through the action as though that's all God cares about. Jesus, remember, preached the same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, So repent. Nevertheless, John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, you need to repent from the heart. And then your life needs to reflect that change of life, that change of belief, that change of heart. Don't think that you can come down and nod your head and go through a baptism here in the the Jordan River and go home unchanged and have accomplished anything. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John says to them in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, plural. So all humanity, really. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God knows who you are. He knows your life. He knows your heart. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Does your life reflect repentance? Does your life reflect humble faith in Jesus Christ? Somebody might say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. And that's true. 
But for these men, it might have been the last day of their lives or the last week or the last month. And they may have left John there at the Jordan and gone away from the cul-de-sac, gone back to Jerusalem, carried about their lives, and died of a heart attack a week later. And if they had not repented, there's no hope. Even if they were baptized. Even if they confessed. If there's no repentance. If there's no genuine new life that results in a different life, there's no hope. The announcement of the kingdom of heaven was given to the men of, and women of Israel, some who didn't even survive the month. Well, who is the, angel, the agent of this judgment and redemption? It's not John. It's the one he comes to announce. It's the mighty one. You might remember in the Gospel of John, different John... They come to John and they say, who are you? Are you this one? Are you that one? And he says, I'm, I'm not Elijah. I'm not this one. I'm not the one to come. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John never confused his role with what Jesus was to do. So he says in the last couple verses of our passage, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's something very modern about this. It's so common to hear people say today, you have no right to judge somebody else. You have no right to judge somebody else. And that's true. I'm not God. You're not God. We can't say what somebody else's heart is. We can't say whether or not someone is right in the sight of God. That's exactly right. John acknowledges that. I'm just baptizing you with water for the sake of repentance. My message is clear. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent. And those who repent and confess their sins, I baptize. But that's all that I do. That's all that I do. But John says, there's one who's coming who is mightier than I. He is about to arrive on the scene. In fact, the next passage we look at, starting in verse 13, says Jesus comes from Galilee down to Jordan to be baptized by John, and Jesus enters the scene. When John spoke these words, Jesus had not yet made himself publicly known, but he was about to. As we, as we gather here right now, Jesus has not yet returned, but he is about to. He could return today. He could return a thousand years from now. But it is just as urgent as when John preached. Just as John describes, Jesus is coming to separate the righteous from the wicked. It's not my job. Jesus is coming to cut down the fruitless trees and spare the fruitful trees. That's not my job. Jesus is coming to separate the wheat from the chaff, to gather the wheat into his barn, and to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, to take his people into eternal life with him, and to send the wicked into eternal torment. It's not my job. It's not my job to say who he's going to judge or who he's not going to judge. 
It's my job, it's your job, if Jesus is your Lord, to proclaim the message that he is coming. And he is coming for the sake of judgment and redemption. It's not our job to say to somebody that they're in a lost state unless their own mouth and their own life clearly says that they're in a lost state. And even then, it's not our job to condemn them, but to proclaim the message of judgment and of salvation in Christ. John gives us three pictures of this final judgment. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Trees is plural. It refers to every human being. And there's going to be a division. And we don't see the good side. We only see the negative side. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Nothing is yet said about the trees that bear good fruit, but clearly there's a difference between the trees that do and the trees that don't. The second picture, I'm sorry, the third picture, I'm going to do this out of order, is the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest. The Lord is coming to clear his threshing floor. That's a picture of the whole world. Let me just emphasize the word his. It is his threshing floor. Those who deny him, belong to him. They live on his threshing floor. They're in his world. Those who say that they have a different understanding than the Christian understanding are occupying his world. They're living on his threshing floor. It belongs to him. And he is coming to separate the wheat from the chaff. That happens automatically now with combines. The combine goes down the row. I've never seen wheat being harvested, but I've, I've ridden with my... my uh, daughter's father-in-law Randy a few times in, in the combine the, the the wheat goes in the front or the, the corn goes in the front the soybeans goes in the front the good stuff is kept in the hopper the chaff is blown out the back back in this day the wheat would be cut down it'd be allowed to dry a little bit it would be brought into a, a clean dry threshing floor they would take um, they, they would take these instruments that were wood sticks separated by a a piece of chain or a piece of rope, a flail, and they began beating on it to knock the grains of wheat loose. Then they would take the winnowing fork and they would begin separating. And as they lift it and toss it, the grain falls to the bottom. They eventually pull the hay out. In our time, a combine spits all of that debris out the back, probably because there's no point in keeping it and it kind of fertilizes the the soil. Back then, they weren't going to haul it back out to the field, so they just burned it and then they sweep up the grain, and they keep the grain. That's what Jesus is coming to do. He hasn't yet come to do it finally, but the process has, process has, has begun. <clears throat> I don't want to overstretch the picture, but that swinging of the flail is, is what we're doing when we preach the gospel. When you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody, either somebody hears it and they're drawn toward it, and they're, they're drawn by the Father and they begin to hear, they begin to listen, they begin to believe, and they move down that line, or they reject and they reject and they reject and they reject because they're hay, they're chaff. The second picture, the one that I took out of order, is baptism. He's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There are many who think that baptism with fire is a good thing here. It's not. We see fire with the trees. The trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. 
We see the chaff thrown into an unquenchable fire. When Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire, it's for the sake of of regeneration and forgiveness and judgment. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be made alive in Christ, to be born again. To be baptized with fire here is to be cast into judgment. In each of these pictures, the Lord himself separates the righteous from the wicked. It's not my job. It's not my job to go through anybody's life. It's not your job to go through my life and say yes, no, yes, no. It's our job to proclaim this message to those that we can and to pray that the Lord would save to pray that he would have mercy. As we think about bringing this home, the message of the gospel is really the same message that John preached in its essence. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Those who repent of their sins and put their faith in him will be saved from the judgment to come. They are precious to him. They're they're not just good trees or wheat. They're his children. They're his brothers and sisters. (coughs) Many people in our time are like the Pharisees. They don't see a need to repent because they're good enough. They don't see a need to repent because they're religious enough. They don't see a need to repent because, in their opinion, they meet God's standard. They don't see a need to repent because they've created a God in their own image who actually approves of their sin, who affirms it who says it doesn't matter who you are or what you do or what you think or what you believe. I love you. Everything's good. And that's not the message of Scripture. Many people in our time are like the Sadducees. They don't see a point in repentance because when you die, you die. When you're dead, you're gone. There's nothing left. Whatever is there about you is purely materialistic. And there's nothing more except a grave somewhere or an urn. So there's no point in repentance. You know, our job is not to persuade either one of those groups that they're wrong. Our job is to proclaim to them the gospel and trust that the Holy Spirit will do the work that we can't begin to do in the depths of somebody's life. It can become, be, be really discouraging Generally speaking, a couple of times a month, I I speak at the Norfolk Rescue Mission. I speak at an evening chapel. I'm scheduled to speak tomorrow night. We'll see how my voice does. And it's always evangelistic because of the people who are there. I've never had one person come up after and say, I want to talk more about Jesus. I've never had one person contact me a month later because they know who I am and say something happened that night and I want to talk to you about it. So why do it? Because tomorrow night there might be a man or a woman there who is being called by the Father. And as I go in with the gospel they might hear it and say that's what I want. That's what I need. I need to be forgiven. I need to be made clean. I need to be given a new life. I've made a wreck of my life. I don't need a second chance or a third chance. I I need something completely different. I need something 
new. But I'll tell you, the majority of the people sitting there have heard it all before over and over and over and over again, and they've already shut me off. You can tell from their body language and the way that they sit. They don't even do you the common courtesy of pretending to pay attention. Some of them just sitting back in the, and nap. And it can be really discouraging. And if I went in there thinking it's my job to grab their attention and to grab their hearts and to grab their imagination and persuade them, I would never try. I go in with the confidence that I serve a God who saves sinners. And he does so by his power through the preaching of his word. And I'm not perfect at it, and sometimes I'm not very good at it. But I go in with as much of the gospel as I can. And I tell my story. I talk about my sin and my lack of faith and my upbringing and him rescuing me and what he's done in my life since. And I urge people, repent. Repent. And then I back away and I leave it in the hands of God. I leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what you have to do with your friends, with your family, with people that you meet in the store. You share what you're able to share. But never do that flippantly. Always understand that the very moment that you're preaching the gospel is a moment of division. That those who are wicked and dead in their sins, who are going to die in their sins, are, are condemning themselves even more by rejecting that message. Every time they reject, they're adding to their own damnation. Don't stop because there's that man, that woman, who needs to hear this message. Trust the Lord to do the work. Our task is to proclaim Jesus in his gospel, calling people to repent of their sins and to simply trust him to turn to him. It's the Spirit's job to grant them repentance, give them faith, and save them. I would prefer to be like John, really, and then have no response than to fear not having a response and to say nothing. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means. We ask, Lord, for those that we know <coughs> who, who don't know you, who are committed to their own sin and their own wickedness. We know that our salvation is a gift from you. Our faith is a gift from you. Our repentance is a gift from you. And Lord, we ask with full hearts and even a sense of desperation, we ask that you would save them. We ask that you would do for them what you have done for us. At the same time, we humbly acknowledge your power and your sovereignty, your lordship over all things. We give you thanks for the salvation that you have given us. 
And we ask that you would continue to deepen our relationship with you, continue to give us assurance, continue to grow us in Christ as we face the, the opposition and the hatred and the anger and the perversion of this world. And we ask that you would do all these things, Lord, for the sake of your glory and majesty. And it's in Jesus' holy name that I pray these things. Amen.